that for us to pick up in our lesson in First Peter where we left off in our last Sunday evening service. First Peter chapter 2. It's good to have all these young people back with us this evening. That's really great that they would come out tonight. So we want you to listen and to the word and I believe it will be a blessing to all of us. First Peter chapter 2 beginning with verse 6. We left off teaching with verse 5, and we had read on down, but we didn't completely discuss from verse 6 onward, so we'll pick up with verse 6. It says, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Now, if you want the place that is contained in Scripture, look back in Isaiah 28 and verse 16. And we want to, there's a whole lot to be taught in this particular verse, and so we want to show you where it's contained in Scripture and how that the Holy Spirit in the New Testament under Peter uses somewhat different words to explain this same passage. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Now look at it. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tribe stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Now, Peter says, He that believeth shall not be confounded. Now, hold those two places, and I believe you can, and turn also, just flip on over in the middle of them, to Romans 10, verse 10 and 11. Well, let's read verse 9 through 11. It's used again by Paul. Isaiah gave us the, the, the scripture, the prophecy. Peter quoted it. We just read it. And Paul quotes a portion of it here in Romans 10 to show us a special truth. It says in verse 9 now, let's read verse 9, 10, and 11, uh, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, now that he's pointing to the same thing, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. I want you to notice. Paul says here that the believer shall not be ashamed. Peter says the believer shall not be confounded. And, uh, and uh, Isaiah said, for he that believeth shall not make haste. Now then, we need to bring these three thoughts into focus to really understand what it means. It really means that he who comes to God through Christ, that he believes on Christ, for salvation, shall never be confounded. In other words, he'll not uh, need to haste or flee away uh, because he will find that no enemy shall harm him. He'll find full salvation and full protection in Jesus Christ. He that believeth on him shall not be confused. He will not be turned away. He will find safety and security in Christ. He will find salvation in Christ. No one can harm him if he does this. And all of these thoughts are, are in harmony with what the three uh, scriptures give us. When we think of whosoever believed him, in him shall not make haste, as Isaiah says, we're wondering what haste means. It means he'll not have to run away somewhere else to find this salvation for he's found it in Christ. See? When, when uh, Peter says he shall not be confounded, it means that he'll not be turned away. 
and he'll not be confused in the matter that he can trust in the Lord certainly truly with all of his heart and when uh, Paul uh, is saying that in Romans 10 whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed in other words he will not be put to shame so as to think that the salvation that's provided would not be sufficient in other words he has the salvation he's looking for and the word ashamed there is a little different than we think of someone ashamed as being ashamed to be seen with someone we say I'm ashamed to be seen with that person or uh, you know certain situations arise that we're ashamed of well that's not the case it's talking about we will not be ashamed in that we will uh, have to uh, to uh, feel as if we cannot find the salvation that is to be had in Jesus Christ. So all these three thoughts are coming out in the believer. But we, there's something else there that we, we take, we've taken the last part of the verse, back now in 1 Peter chapter 2, and dealt with this specifically, but what about the thought of the uh, chief cornerstone, the elect cornerstone? Now if you'll notice what... Uh, it said in Isaiah 28, verse 16, it says, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation. We know the stone is Christ, right? It's referring to Jesus. There's no question about that. But we want to see the various aspects that it's referring to Jesus. So if you have Isaiah, hold your place in Peter and Isaiah. Uh, if you have it, Isaiah 28, verse 16, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 6. So, in Isaiah 28, verse 16, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. First of all, Christ is that stone. And then it says, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Now, Jesus is all of these. You know, remember, he's a stone. Matthew 16, verse 18, he, said, he says, Upon this rock I will build my church. He's the stone. He's the rock. Christ is that rock of foundation. He is the true foundation. You find that in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, where it says, Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. He's the sure foundation. And then he's a tribe. It says in Isaiah, he's a tribe stone. What does that mean? He's tried, he's tested, he's proven. If you have a stone uh, that, say you have a big piece of limestone or something out there, and you... you were to try to break it and you see it's very breakable that it could be crushed or broken at a seam or a joint and would really crack and fall apart you say well that one's not good not good enough to hold the the uh, header over the the window because it would break and it would crash down or over the door opening see so you wouldn't choose that stone would you but Jesus is a tried stone he can be laid anywhere in the foundation, and thus he really becomes the chief cornerstone, the main stone of the building's foundation. And he was tried by Satan. He was tried by men. In other words, he was tested, wasn't he? He was put to the test. Satan put him to the test. Matthew 4, remember how he was tried, and he overcame every uh, temptation of the devil that he tried to... Con, uh, confuse Jesus or cause him to fall into temptation. And then he is uh, the precious cornerstone to the believer. So you find all these thoughts coming through. Uh, <clears throat> As such, he was rejected. Let's go on and read in First Peter. You still have First Peter? Let's go and read down further. It says in verse 7, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. 
The word precious does not mean like we think of precious in the way of dear, though Jesus is dear and close to us. But it, it really simply means a very costly, very valuable, of great value. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is of greatest value. He is a cornerstone that's been tried. He can be put into that building. And the church is built upon himself. And we are living stones, verse 5, if you look glance up in your scriptures. We're the living stones. And he is uh, also a living stone in verse 4. And he compares us to himself in verse 5. You see that? And down in verse 7, unto you therefore which believe he is precious. In other words, he is the greatest. He is, he is he's an honor. He's honorable. In fact, if you have a marginal reference, it will say he is an honor. If you have a marginal reference in your Bible, I don't know that you do. Some uh, so sometimes you have a little number by some statements and uh, words in the Bible and, and then if you look in the margin it will explain and show you the emphasis from the Greek to the English meaning of that word and it will show you what it's really emphasizing in that Christ is precious to us it means he is an honor to us he's, he's dear to us okay now then on down look at it it says but unto them which uh uh, be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. The builders, who are the builders? The builders basically should have been the Jewish nation and people. They were to build up the true religion. They were to build the things of God and to stand for the things of God. But they did not do that. And we're going to give you some references here concerning those that are builders. Let's turn back. Uh, first of all, we find the initial reference to this rejection by the builders in Psalm 118, verse 22, a prophecy of what was going to happen. It says, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see that in Psalm 118? Verse 22 and 23. Now then, if you turn over to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 21, uh, Jesus, we're going to give you a whole parable here to get you to understand this. Jesus gives the parable of the householder which planted a vineyard in verse 33. And on down, he, he applies this to the... Uh, Jewish people, especially the chief priests and scribes and the Pharisees, who had rejected Christ. Now, let's look at it and see what happens. You have Matthew 21, verse 33. Now, look at this. Jesus says, Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it, built a tower, <clears throat> let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. <clears throat> and when the time of the fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. Remember, Israel is spoken of as a vine, or last week we pointed out that they're like a vine. Their religious life is like the vine. And this falls in line with that. Uh, and you'll see the, the similarity of it as we progress. Now look in verse 35. The husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did unto him, them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son. That's when this, this is like God the Father sending his son to Israel, to the Jews, 
saying, They will reverence my son. But did they? Look. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. They said, You'll have nothing to do with our religious life. We'll get rid of you. See, the vineyard is typical of Israel's religious life. Now look at it. Okay, so they got rid of Christ, didn't they? They rejected Jesus. And they did kill him. And he was telling them what they were going to do, really, here. Verse 40. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those wicked, unto those husbandmen? Uh, and they answer it themselves. Verse 41. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Now look what Jesus said. In relation to this parable, Jesus uh, saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He said, Did you ever read in the Psalm that 118, verse 22 and 23, that I just read to you? Didn't you ever read about that? And he says, This parable is in harmony with this Scripture, and you've rejected Let's go on down and see who he's referring to. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, now look, and given, uh, uh, shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles to bring forth fruits under, in the gospel, preaching. Now we're going down. Read the rest of the verses. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parable, they perceived that he spake of them. See that? They perceived. They rightly perceived. Didn't they? Look, the next verse. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. See, they were ready to lay hands on that son that was sent, right? And he says, the kingdom is going to be taken from you, the values of of the kingdom of God, and it and will be preached by, I'm going to give it to other nations, bringing forth fruit. And so it was committed to the Gentiles. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, or shortly after, I shouldn't say the very day of Pentecost, but in the book of Acts, chapter 4, and I gave you this last week, and let's tie them all together, and you'll see really how it does tie together. Look in Acts 4, beginning with verse 10. Acts 4, verse 10. We're, we're still on the same subject of this stone being rejected, of Jesus Christ being rejected. Uh, though he was the head of the corner, he was rejected. Now look at verse 10. Uh, Acts 4, verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified... They rejected, whom God raised from the dead, even by him that this man stand here before you hold. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. See? He tells who the builders are, doesn't he? He says, this is the stone, Christ, and he was set at naught of you builders. Jesus had told them about it before they set him at naught, before they crucified him. He told them what was going to happen. The son that this husband... Husbandmen sent, I mean, that this householder sent unto these husbandmen. They took him and killed him and said, Let us seize upon this inheritance. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. You know, if these three verses that Peter preached shortly after Pentecost 
would not convince these Jews that they had rejected their Messiah, I don't know what would. He says, it's evident, you've said it not. The stone, the, the chief cornerstone, you have not believed him, and you've set him aside, and you would not receive Christ, and that you cannot have salvation in any other, for there's none other name whereby we must be saved. All right, back in 1 Peter chapter 2 now. You see how much is contained in verse 6 and 7? Verse 6 and 7 is what we've looked at. Now look, look at verse 8. This same stone, in verse 8, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now notice in verse 7, he's precious to the believer very honorable, very valuable, very precious and dear, but to the unbeliever he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And those are the ones that stumble at the word. They do not believe that this prophecy of Isaiah, that this verse in the Psalms, that these words of Peter, that the words of Paul referring to Christ, and the words of Jesus himself actually are to be uh, looked upon as uh, as truth and as uh, giving them the message of Christ and of salvation. You see, they reject the Word, don't they? That's basically what it is. They reject the Word of God. And doing so, they bring upon themselves judgment. It says, being disobedient whereunto also they were appointed. And of course, the unbelievers under the judgment of God. Disobedient to the Word of God. Now look at verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation. Who are you? If you'll refer back up to verse 7, unto you therefore which believe. Now then drop that on down and connect it with verse 9. See verse 7? You believers are a chosen generation. That's what it's talking about. See, you want to see who's the subject matter. When you're studying the Bible, who's he talking to? He says, you're a chosen generation. In verse... Um, he says you're living stones in the spiritual building, right? Down here in verse 9, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation of peculiar people. When you think of a chosen generation, what does it mean? It means a race or kind. You're a chosen race. You're a chosen kind of people. You're a particular, special, elect people of God. Now, let me show you something here. There's a lot of room for teaching something else right at this point. If you'll notice the word generation, it doesn't mean you're a chosen generation as to this particular period of time and only you that are that span a period of time of about 40 years, if we take the word generation and make it mean a section of time or a particular time, like we have a family here say that that's the third generation. We speak of the fact that there's a, a father, grandfather, son, or maybe fourth generation, a, grandson, a great-grandson, and so on. We're not talking about generations in that way. Say there's three generations or four generations. When he says you're a chosen race, it comes from the word G-E-N-O-S, which means race or kind. And that's where most of the people that are setting dates for Christ's coming have missed the mark. You know why? They've taken the word generation that Jesus used in exactly the same way. He says, this generation shall not pass away. This race, this Jewish race, shall not cease to be till Christ comes. 
And they've taken that word where he says, This generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And they said, Well, that marks a time that when Israel went back to, to their land and was established in the land in 1948, that Jesus would have to come in, a, in less than 40 years because of the limit of a generation is a 40-year span. If you take Webster, you'll describe it 30 to 40 years. And you see, that's where they missed the mark in trying to set dates. Now, I hope Jesus comes soon, and I'm ready for Christ to come. And the nearer His coming is, uh, the more the signs of the times that we see are being fulfilled. And I believe that, that the Lord, that God is trying to tell this nation something today. Look at the hurricane, and look at the earthquakes, and look at the tragedies and the things that are coming about in our land, and more in the last ten years than you know, in the last hundred years. You see what's happening? And I believe that, that God Almighty is trying to get our attention and wake us up to the fact that the nearness of Christ is at hand. But on the other hand, I wouldn't be so foolish as to say that he's coming at any particular uh, certain day or time because uh, Jesus said that no man knows the time. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. It's not for you to know. If it was for us to know, well, then it would take away the expectancy of his coming. You see, that's the whole point that Jesus is making when he tells us to watch ye therefore. Be prepared. Be expecting. Be on the alert. And be ready. And so if you take that away, well, then, then you would spoil the whole meaning of what Jesus was talking about. When you read Matthew 24, when he says, This generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled, he means this race, this Jewish race, just like Peter here. You're a chosen generation. You're a chosen kind of people. It comes from that word, G-E-N-O-S, meaning race or kind. And uh, we know that this particular verse here in First Peter chapter 2 is not only including the Jewish race, but the elect of the Gentiles, and we'll show you that in a moment. It's God's saved people. You believers are a chosen people. You're a chosen uh, elect people. And I'm sure they were Jews, and I'm sure they were Gentiles. But they, they were all belonging to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 9 again. You're a royal priesthood. We've already dealt with that last week. And a holy nation, a peculiar people. So he designates all these terms that originally he applied to Israel of old to New Testament uh, believers or the elect of God. We'll go on down and uh, deal with the next verses and come back and give you something else. It says, A peculiar people, read it on down that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you can see by the finish of the verse that it's talking about believers, that he's called you out of sin and darkness and the kingdom of Satan and into his marvelous light. So it's the transformation uh, and translation of believers out of the old life of sin and Satan into a new life in Jesus Christ. And uh, then verse 10 says, Which in time past were not a people... But now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. There's the scripture. Look at verse 10. Very carefully. You see, when we read a verse, we may receive many blessings and, and much insight and something good to our hearts. That's great. You know, it is like a letter to us. It is spiritual to us. It does help us. But we need to really fairly understand what he's talking about, too. We need to get more than just the surface meaning of it. That's good, but let's delve into it. 
in the Old Testament, when uh, the Lord spoke through Hosea, and in this verse, verse 10, which in times past were not a people, but now the people of God, let's go back and look at Hosea 1, 9 and Hosea 2, verse 23. This is where the scripture comes from. When it's spoken there, it's to the Jewish people. That had, uh, look at Daniel, Hosea, Daniel, and then Hosea, chapter 1. And let's read, uh, unless there's two verses, I want to read Daniel, uh, I mean Hosea, Hosea, chapter 1, verse 9. The reason I said Daniel was to get you in the area, but I repeated it again. Verse 9. Then said God, Call his name Moama, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. See, God was not claiming them anymore as his own. And this, this was talking about the Jewish people. And this particular, we won't go into all the details of Hosea because that would take too much time to explain, but you do see that at one time he was disowning them. Let's just put it simply that way. He was disowning them because of their sin, right? their adultery, their fornication, their whoredoms, all the terrible things they were committing. And he was disowning them. But this was not a permanent condition because they would be restored. It was a temporary condition with Israel even. He says, For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And then he goes on, verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. So he's talking about a restoration of some of them. Now then look in Hosea 2, Hosea 2, verse 23. It says, And I will sow her unto me in the earth. God would uh, sow Israel, scatter her in the earth, sow the seed of this nation and this people in the earth. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. Now look. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Now that's what Peter is referring to over here. Come back now to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. He says, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God. He's given us what Hosea spoke in prophecy concerning Israel and their restoration. They're now people of God, but he's talking about it here in a spiritual way. There are some of Israel that had believed. But does it just mean Israel only? Does it mean just the Jews only? No. And I'll show you in the book of Romans where Paul uses it now to show us that it includes Gentile believers as well as Jews. In the book of Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse uh, 24, it says, Even us whom we have called, not of the Jews only, Paul says, but also of the Gentiles. Now look, and he connects it in verse 25 with the prophecy of Hosea. As he saith also in O.C. or Hosea, this is O.C. means uh, the same as Hosea. This is the Greek translated into the English in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, Hosea is the Hebrew translated into the English. So in the New Testament, you have the Greek of Hosea, O.C. And in the Old Testament, you have the Hebrew, the, the English of the Hebrew language, Hosea. And so, a lot of times you'll find in the New Testament the words will not completely jive, we'll use that language, with that which is in the Old Testament because of the difference in language. You see, all of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. All the New Testament was written in Greek. And when you translate either one into English, you're naturally going to come up with a little different word. 
And there are other things that enter into the picture that I'll not have time to delve into tonight. And that is the, the what we call the Septuagint version. There were various versions of Scripture in of the Old Testament in uh, in use in the days of Jesus. And we have reason to believe that he was reading from that Septuagint version, that's from the 70 that translated the Hebrew of the Old Testament in the days of Jesus. See, we didn't have a New Testament in the days of Jesus, right? It was just being made up. It was just being done, lived out and written and finally coming to, to being with the uh, apostolic writings. But anyway, let's look at this. So when Paul, in Romans chapter 9, now look at this, uses this scripture, he says that the scripture that Hosea was talking about, you have it now? Romans 9, verse 25, As he saith also in O.C., or Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. And it applies also to what? Gentile believers. See what we're doing? We're showing you that basically in the Old Testament, Hosea was speaking to Israel. But when you come over into the New Testament, both Peter and now look, Paul show us that it not only includes the believers of the Jewish people, but it especially embraces the Gentile believers. That now he's going to call us his people who were not a people before. And uh, that's what the meaning of First Peter 2, verse 10. Now then, there's something that uh, we didn't deal with in verse 9. We read it hurriedly. Let's read it again. I didn't deal with the last part of the verse. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into, the, into his marvelous light. That means that we should show forth the word praises means like the virtues or the character of, the, of a Christian. Because we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, we should not live any longer as those who walk in darkness and are, are living in darkness. Show forth Christian virtues or praises in that sense of the word. Uh, now in verse 11. Now, what I'm trying to do tonight is just take each verse and let you see more in depth into these verses than just the surface, as if you were just reading it. You know, sometimes you read it and you say, well, you think you've got it. But have you noticed that there's so many things there that we really haven't gotten until we really get into the studying of it? There's a lot of things there, isn't it? So if we just take... If we, say we would take that one reference in verse 10 and just turn back to Hosea and say, well, God was talking there about Jews. So all these that Peter referring to must be Jew, Jewish believers. But we've already read back in verse 7 where it says, unto you therefore which believe, I cannot be convinced that he was talking to only Jewish believers. Can you? But he says, unto you that believe is precious. I believe he's talking about Jewish and Gentile believers. All believers at that particular time, and future believers also, right? So now, you watch this in verse 11. We'll pick it up there. And as I say, I'm just trying to give you some things that maybe you don't see on the surface of the matter. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, are we strangers and pilgrims? We are. We're, we're like strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You turn to Hebrews 11. 
Hebrews holds a place where we're studying. Always holds a place where we're studying. You want to be a Bible student, holds a place where the text is. Because you're going to come right back to that often and often and often. And so hold your place in 1 Peter 2 and always keep that in mind. And then when you come to, to uh, Hebrews 11, I'll give you the reference. It says in verse uh, 13, These all died in faith, referring to Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and the various ones. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed. Now look, even Abraham, the man of faith, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. See, Abraham, they dwelled in tents. Look back in verse uh, 9. You have Hebrews 11, 9. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, what did Abraham do? He dwelt in tents. He went from place to place. And he said, I'm just a stranger here on the earth. And we are. Peter says, we are strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Beloved, let's not get too well attached to this earth. Most of us have become too attached to it. But don't do that. Because you're going to leave it all behind one of these days. You're not even going to take a shoelace with you. You're going to be gone. There'll be nothing, you know, you leave it all. Every bit of it. And so, let's remember that we're strangers and pilgrims in the earth. What God has given you and blessed you with, take it and live. Uh, enjoy the fruits of your labor, of your hands, that the Bible tells us back in the book of uh, uh, Ecclesiastes. That it's for your use and for your good and for your sharing and for your uh, for for your stewardship while you're here upon this earth. And thank God for it. But don't ever become so attached to it that you'll be like Lot's wife when she looked back to Sodom and says, "Now all my house is back there. All my precious things in that household." God said, "Don't look back." And Lot's Jesus said, "Remember Lot's wife. He didn't want to leave that earthly possession, did she?" And she didn't want to even leave that city, though it was steeped in wickedness. And though God said, I'm going to judge it, and God's going to judge this world one day, and we better be ready to get out of it. And I'm ready. I'm ready because I'm saved, and because I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And everyone here can be ready if you'll just trust the Lord as your own personal Savior. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to know that you can have that feeling of security. And God wants you to have that. He wants you to be sure of it. He wants you to know you're saved and know that heaven's your home and then begin to live like you should upon this earth and keep all these things that we've tried to bring to you in mind that all things of this earth are temporal but the things of eternity are, are the things that are not seen and that uh, we can lay hold on by faith are eternal. The things of God. Get things in their proper perspective. We need to learn to be happy with whatever God has given us. You know, Paul says, I've learned that whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. Whatever. He says, I've had, a, I've, I've had plenty. And he says, I've been in poverty. He says, I've hungered. I was in thirst. I was in fastings. I, I had very little. Then he says, now I, sometimes I have all in the bound. But he says, I've learned one thing, that whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. 
So we need to understand that. He even meant Texas, too, if you have to go to Texas. Just throw that in to help. No, he meant state. He meant the condition of things, really. There was to be content. All right, let's look at this. Uh, verse uh, 11 again. It says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. You see what Peter's talking about? If none of us had any fleshly lusts, Peter would have not have said, wouldn't have had to wrote that or said that, would he? He's telling what is a, an enemy to our souls. He says these things war against the soul. You know we have three great enemies: the world around us, the flesh within us, and the devil walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three great enemies of the Christian. You say, well, I can, I can abstain from all the uh, bright lights of the world and that, everything that would allure me into temptation and, and I can stay out of Las Vegas and I can stay out of the gambling dens and I can stay out of the saloons and so on. Well, that's pretty good. And other worldly things that would draw you away. The world has many attractions. That's only just one little faucet of it. But anyway, you say, I can do pretty good there. And the devil, the Bible says, the devil walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But the Bible tells us to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But the Bible says that the spirit lusteth against the flesh, and the flesh against the spirit. And these are contrary the one to the other. Uh, Paul says, if we, if we walk in the spirit, we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So the only way to live a victorious life as a Christian is to not feed upon things which feed the desires of the flesh. So we've got to learn to take care of that end of the situation and to make sure that when lustful things are attracting us and pulling us away from God, that we'll turn to the to the Lord and we'll turn to spiritual things and feed our souls upon spiritual things, our soulish nature in within us that's spiritual, the divine nature, and not feed the old carnal nature with, that is within us. And if you start feeding that carnal nature, the more you feed it, the more it will need to be fed, the greater appetite it will have. For instance, I think one avenue of feeding those lusts is television. And so you have to be very careful what you look at on television. You'll be looking at a program and all of a sudden very lustful thoughts and things will come before your eyes. Right? Now we're all grown ups here. Even the young people are grown up more these days than they used to be. But what I'm trying to say is that this is a, a matter of fact. And if you leave that uh, stuff on that, that encourage your lustful desires and fleshly desires to the point that, that you start feeding those instead of saying, well, I recognize this is something I don't need, and you turn to something else that may be a little more suitable for you as a Christian to look at. And by the way, you have to screen a great deal of it to do that. So, uh, but if you leave it there, you're just feeding that old carnal nature. And the longer you leave it there, the more you'll want to let that carnal nature be fed, and the more you'll ignore the spiritual nature within you, the divine nature, and realize that it need, you, you won't realize that it needs to be fed spiritual food, right? So that's that's what happens. And so Peter says, 
dearly beloved, you're strangers and pilgrims. He says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It says, having our conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, he says, be a testimony, right? When others look at you, they won't be able to speak against you as evildoers. They'll know that. They'll speak of you as a Christian, right? That's what we want people to say about us, don't we? That he, he's a Christian lady, that's a Christian lady or gentleman. They, they act like Christian people. They live a Christian life. I couldn't, I couldn't have a better thing said about me. I, I don't, I'd rather have that said than you say I'm a, I'm a good preacher. I'd like to be a good preacher. But I'd rather you say, there's a good Christian man. I'd rather have that compliment. I remember Dr. Connolly. He had two sons. One of them was a preacher. Uh, remember Dr. Peter Connolly? Some of you heard me speak about him. He used to teach us, be a, one of our professors in the seminary. And he had two sons. One of them was a real dynamic preacher. And uh, the other one was uh, a saved man, a Christian, but he was not a preacher. He was a businessman or whatever. But he said, my son can preach about what you ought to live, how you ought to live. But he says, I've got another son that can live a Christian life. And the other son that was not a preacher could live a Christian life. And he was real proud of him because he, he didn't profess to be a preacher or anything, but he did know how to live a Christian life. That's one of the greatest things. I remember working for a gentleman left in the Upper Canyon one time. He had run into a wall. He was staying in this house. Uh, this pe- the people from uh, Midland, by the way, let him stay in the house. And he was staying in this house in the Upper Canyon. And when he went out, the snow was pretty deep, and he had hit the, the retainer wall there and knocked two or three blocks off the end. Called me up there to fix it for him. I told him I would fix it. The very first thing he did, he says, Now, Brother Joyce, he says, I broke down Mr. Taylor's walls here. And he says, uh, I want it fixed, and I want it fixed right. And he says, I want you to tell me. He says, I'm a Christian gentleman. He says, I want you to tell, tell me how much it will cost, and I'll pay you for it, and I want it fixed that way. I says, all right. And I did. I fixed it for him. But I appreciate him wanting to be up front that he wanted it done right because he had made a mistake or he had had an accident. He wanted the man's property left right. He wanted to pay me right, but he wanted me to do it right. I appreciate that kind of thing. Don't you? I think it's, I think it's commendable. Later on, I built a whole house for him. Uh, he had me to build his house. And uh, he's a very nice, one, wonderful Christian man. And I appreciate that. Well, that's what the Lord wants us to, to be. That's what Peter was encouraging. So we'll, we'll leave off with verse um, 12. And we'll pick up some more of our lesson, the Lord willing, the next time we meet on Sunday evening in First Peter chapter 2.